Section 10 of Monday Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monday Tales by Alphonse Daudet. Translated by Marianne McIntyre. Section 10. Belisaire's Prussian. Here is an incident I heard related in a potouze at Montmartre. To repeat it to you as it was told, I ought to have the local vocabulary of Master Belisaire, his big carpenter's apron, and two or three draughts of that fine white wine of Montmartre, which can give a Parisian accent even to a Frenchman from Marseille. Then I should be sure the same shiver would pass through your veins as thrilled mine, in hearing Belisaire narrate to a table full of companions this lugubrious and veritable story. It was the day after the amnesty, the armistice, Belisaire would say. My wife had sent us both, the boy and me, to take a walk around Villeneuve-la-Garenne, for we had a little shanty there at the river's edge, and we had been without news of it ever since the siege began. I was bothered at having to take the boy along, for I knew we should run into the Prussians, and, as I had never met any of them before, I felt sure that something would happen. But the mother stuck to her idea and said, Go, go, then the child will get an airing. And, indeed, the poor thing needed one badly enough, after five months of siege and mildew. And so we both started out for the country. Maybe the brat wasn't pleased to find out that there were still trees and birds. Maybe he didn't paddle through the plowlands. But I didn't enjoy myself quite so much. There were too many helmets along the road. From the canal to the island I saw nothing else. Insolent dogs. One had to hold on to himself with all his might to keep from hammering one or two. But you may believe I nearly boiled over when I entered Villeneuve and saw our poor gardens completely ruined, our houses open, turned inside out, and those bandits making themselves at home in our quarters, calling from window to window, hanging their woolen shirts upon our shutters and trellises. Luckily, the child was at my side, and when my hand itched too much, I thought, as I looked at him, "'Keep cool, Belisaire. Look out that no harm happens to the youngster.' Only that saved me from making a fool of myself. I understood then why the mother wanted me to take him along. Our shanty stood at the end of the road, last one on the right hand, on the quay. I found it had been emptied from top to bottom, just like the others. Not a bit of furniture, not so much as a pane of glass left. Only a few bundles of straw. The last leg of the big armchair was crackling in the chimney place. I scented Prussians everywhere, but couldn't see one. Then it did seem to me that I heard something stirring down in the basement. I had a little bench there, where I amused myself of a Sunday at odd jobs. I told the boy to wait for me where he was, and I went downstairs to look for myself. No sooner had I opened the door than one of William's soldiers, a big brute of a fellow, sprang with a snort from beneath a pile of shavings and rushed towards me, his eyes starting from his head, and with all manner of oaths I understood not a word of. 
He must have felt out of sorts when he awoke, for at the first word I attempted to say, he started to draw his sword. I was struck of a heap. All the spleen which had been gathering for the last hour was uppermost. I gripped the big iron clamp of the bench, and I struck. You know, comrades, that Belisaire's fist is no light one on ordinary occasions, but that day it seemed as if I had the almighty's thunderbolts at the end of my arm. The very first blow knocked my Prussian silly. There he lay, sprawling at full length. I thought he was only stunned. Well, yes, stunned he was. Done for, my boys. The neatest, cleanest bit of work. As if he'd been washed in potash. What do you say to that, eh? And I, who had never killed anything in my life before, not so much as a lark. It seemed queer enough to see that big carcass stretched in front of me. My word for it, he was a fair, handsome fellow, with a funny little beard that curled just like ash shavings. My legs shook under me as I looked at him. By this time the boy had grown tired upstairs, and I heard him crying at the full strength of his lungs, Papa! Papa! The Prussians were passing along the road. I could catch a glimpse of their sabers and their big legs through the air hole of the basement. Suddenly it occurred to me, if they get in, the child is lost. They'll kill every one they find. That was the end of it. I trembled no longer. I shoved my Prussian hastily under the bench, covering him with everything I could find, boards and sawdust and shavings. Then I went upstairs to find the boy. Come along. What's the matter, Papa? How pale you look. Come, come. And I can tell you, if those Cossacks had turned me upside down, searched me through and through, I'd have offered no objection. It seemed to me every moment that I heard someone running, crying at our backs. Once I heard a horse, close upon us going at a gallop. It startled me so I thought I should drop. But after the bridge was passed, I dared to look about me, and knew where I was again. Saint-Denis was full of people. There was no danger of our being fished out of that crowd. Then, for the first time, I thought of our poor shanty. Very likely, the Prussians would set fire to it when they discovered their comrade. And besides, my neighbor, Jacot, the river-keeper, was the only Frenchman in that neighborhood now, and it would surely make trouble for him when it was found that a soldier had been killed almost at his door. It was a shabby trick I had served him, running off in that fashion. I might at least have put my man where he wouldn't be found. As I came nearer Paris, that thought pestered me more and more. I don't deny it made me uneasy to think I had left that Prussian there in my cellar. When I reached the rampart, I couldn't stand it any longer. Go ahead, I said to the youngster. I have a customer I must see at Saint-Denis. Then I kissed him and turned back. My heart beat a little faster than usual, but what did that matter? I was relieved to think the boy was not with me. As I approached Villeneuve, night was coming on. I kept my eye open, you may be sure, and my head looked out from my heels. The country was quiet enough. I could see the shanty just where it always was, there in the fog. 
Along the quay stretched a long black line. It was the Prussians mustering. I had a good chance of finding the house empty. As I slipped along the enclosures, I saw Father Jacot in his yard, spreading his nets. Surely nothing had been discovered so far. I entered our place and went down cellar, feeling my way along. I found my Prussian was still under his shavings. Two big rats were tugging away at his helmet, and it gave me quite a start to hear that chin-piece moving. For a moment, I thought that the dead man had come to life again, but no, his head was heavy and cold. I hid in a corner and waited. My idea was to throw the body into the Seine after the others had fallen asleep. I don't know whether it was because that corpse was so close to me, but the tattoo of the Prussians sounded infernally doleful to me that evening. Three great trumpet blasts at once, and ta-ta-ta, a regular frog concert. Our soldiers of the line would never want to turn into such music as that. For five minutes I heard the noise of sabers rapping upon the doors. Then some soldiers entered the yard and began to call, Hoffman, Hoffman. Poor Hoffman lay there under his shavings quiet enough. It was I who was ready to drop. Every moment I expected to hear them enter that cellar. I had dug out the dead man's sword, and there I waited, never daring to budge, saying all to myself, if you get out of this alive, my boy, you owe a splendid candle to St. John the Baptist at Belleville. All the same, after they had called Hoffman often enough, my tenants decided to enter. I heard their heavy boots tramping over the stairs, and in a few minutes the entire barrack of them was snoring soundly, making as much noise as a country clock. That was what I had been waiting for. I started out. The bank was deserted. The lights in the houses were out. So much the better. I went down into the basement again. I dug out my Hoffman from under that bench, stood him up and hoisted him over my shoulders as a porter might his pack. Oh, but he was heavy, the rascal. And what with fear and nothing in my crop since morning, I never thought I'd have strength enough for what I had to do. And then... Just on the middle of the quay, I thought I felt someone behind me. I turned around. Not a soul. But the moon was rising. I said to myself, Look out! The sentry may fire upon you any moment. To make matters worse, the Seine was low. If I threw him in near the bank, he'd stay there as if he'd been dropped into a basin. I went in myself, on and on but nowhere water enough. My strength was gone. My limbs were cramped. At last, when I thought I was deep enough in, I let my man drop. But what do you think? He stuck in the mud. Couldn't move him. I shoved and shoved. Get up, get up there. But luckily, an east wind sprang up. The sen swelled, and I felt that the dead man slipped lightly from his mooring. A pleasant voyage. I swallowed a mouthful of water and clambered onto the bank again. As I crossed the Villeneuve Bridge, I saw a black object in the middle of the Seine. From a distance, it looked like a wherry, 
It was my Prussian, floating towards Argentule, following the current of the river. End of section 10. Recording by Linda Johnson.